Welcome to the Psych NP Cast, a podcast made specifically for psychiatric mental health nurse practitioners and their peers. You're about to enjoy, be educated, and entertained about your profession. Just remember, folks, the views you hear on this show are those of our amazing guests. Always validate what you do through your best practice guidelines and patient care standards. Now, let's get to the show. Let's get to the show indeed. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of Psych MPCast. I'm your host, Ed Stern, and my pronouns are he, him, his. Before we get to today's show, I want to remind all of you, please rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to us on. I also really want to thank everyone that sends a personal note. Your comments and show suggestions are really appreciated. Speaking of suggestions, please help us find other guests. If you want to be a guest or know someone who wants to be a guest, check out our website at psychnpcast.com or you can email directly to psychnpcast at gmail.com. Okay, well enough for me. Let's talk about this episode. In this episode, I chat with the amazing Whitney Fear. She's a psych MP and member of the Ogala Lakota Nation in South Dakota. She's living in North Dakota, and she's going to talk to us today about intergenerational trauma. This is something all of us really need to understand, especially when working with indigenous patients. I'm going to let Whitney introduce herself and tell us more about this important topic. Whitney Fear. I work at an FQHC in Fargo, North Dakota called Family Healthcare in our integrated behavioral health program. So we're intended to be working alongside primary care and our we also have a dental department and an optometry department. So Oh wow, truly work, integrated. Yeah, really try to work all of us together. And uh, right now our department is is growing. I am <laughs> I am the only prescriber and then we have one therapy provider with, with uh, adding another therapy provider in the near future, but um, yeah, really good stuff going there. That's great. Wow. I mean, it's amazing to see a completely integrated program like that. Primary care, dentistry, mental health. Um, that's that's got to make your patient population pretty happy, I would think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They really like that where they can just be at one place for all of their stuff that's really convenient for them we have a pharmacy in in-house too oh even really better like yeah yeah so that would be good for me because dentists terrify me so i could go i could have a therapeutic conversation with somebody get medicated go to the dentist and then come back and debrief that would be like the perfect thing for me <laughs> yeah no kidding yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's great so you wanted to talk to us a little little bit today about intergenerational trauma can you go ahead and describe what that is? And yeah, yeah, sure. <clears throat> um, so, my I guess my interest in intergenerational trauma is is personal and professional. Um, I grew up on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, and I'm a member of the Ogallala Sioux Tribe. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> and uh, intergenerational trauma is something that has affected Indigenous populations in North and South America pretty heavily. Yeah. Um, so the synopsis of intergenerational trauma is that it's trauma that extends from one generation to the next. Um, 
populations that are more predisposed to that or those that have experienced systemic exploitation, those who have been exposed to a lot of racism, abuse, poverty, uh, and in intergenerational trauma, there's there was proposed at first just the mechanism that there is this retelling of stories and of uh, parents kind of and other family members kind of teaching that trauma to their kids through parenting. Mm. Um, so things like shared stress or trying to manage everything within one's own community because of the fear of what repercussions of what might happen if you bought side of that community. So the response of what the police would be or uh, of other communities, that backlash of in response to crimes within that other community or whatever. Um, so there's a general distrust of a lot of communities that experienced intergenerational trauma. It is pretty true for the reservation. So, mm-hmm. Really, uh, people get nervous about outside forces coming in. FBI has to handle quite a bit of investigation on the reservation if there's anybody who's non-Native involved because tribal nations can't uh, incarcerate non-tribal members. So the FBI is the one that has to take those people into custody, investigate. Um, there's some survival messages that come with intergenerational trauma too, like don't trust, don't be vulnerable. Um, I know something that's taught within Indigenous communities a lot, I think, is like don't cry if somebody is racist towards you or mean to you because you don't want to let them see that they hurt your feelings, that they harmed mm. you, because then they'll keep doing it. They'll keep coming at you. But if you have a tough face on, then they don't know that they got to you, basically. Um, but then that applies. Of course, kids take those messages and they apply them really broadly, right? Of don't try sure. anytime. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so then, you know, in recent times, there's been now some growing research into the physiological mechanisms of intergenerational trauma, things like telomere shortening that can be inherited to subsequent generations. So, so many questions I have. Um, Let me work backwards, I guess. So can you elaborate some more on the telomere concept and kind of how that applies here? Yeah. Yeah. So telomeres are sort of this protective coating on our genes. Mm-hmm. And without them, where those genes are are left vulnerable to damage, to being um, to oxidative stress and things mm-hmm. like that. And what that what happens there is then we have um, accelerated aging, um, higher incidences of cancer, of heart disease. Mm-hmm. Um, so when, if we haven't had any offspring by the time that telomere shortening occurs in us, then we can inherit that to our offspring because the, the changes would have occurred then. And then, of course, we give some of our genetic material to our offspring. So. Right. Right. <clears throat> so when we look at things like intergenerational trauma, you you spent a lot of time talking about the storytelling and how the stories can, can have impact and how, um, 
you know, one generation shares their, their life experience. Uh, so sure. That's a, you know, the, there's benefits to storytelling. There's, there's the, the negative, you know, obviously that, that continues along with that. Would you say that there's sort of that vocal aspect of sharing the trauma and imparting maybe wisdom's the wrong word, but imparting that story and therefore, you know, the, 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 the trauma, but then there's also the aspect of sort of passing the trauma on genetically, like from an epigenetics standpoint as well. Yeah. So, you know, the, the concept of kind of giving those stories and those things that can be, you know, the, like the mistrust thing, passing that on, they, you know, they're, whenever it's just that, whenever it's kind of just the parents or grandparents or whatever, all you see is that, yeah, that's where those, those kids are getting those messages and they don't really have any reason to believe that they can trust outside forces because then Mm -hmm. there's also this gaslighting that goes on with greater society that is really damaging. Um, So I think a good example of some ways that it's, there's been a big difference in how subsequent generations have healed and are not healed. When you take North American indigenous populations and the, the history is inaccurate or incomplete, what kids learn in school, they learn in school, um, or they're learning at home. You know, people like Christopher Columbus were dangerous. They were, mm-hmm. he was brutal, he was violent, he did not good things. And they go to school and here, he was a hero. He, he found this place, he made, sure. it, he made it great, all this other stuff. And so that's a, you know, mixed messages there that kids are receiving. And if you look at Australia, Australia did something um, where the the prime minister and the government in Australia decided that they needed to make uh, reparations with the Aboriginal people in Australia. And they, it was, it was a big event they read this this long decree stating that they had they admitted to being violent to attempting to exterminate aboriginal people to mm. attempting to eradicate their culture and their their languages and they also put some things in place like it's against the law to commit cultural appropriation of aboriginal ceremonies and songs and things so mm-hmm. um there's consequences right for trying to you know, do some of the things that can be damaging. And as a result, those Aboriginal generations now and, and even, you know, a generation or two back are, are healthier, much healthier emotionally, physically, their communities are, are growing stronger, their rates of domestic violence and things like that are going down. And it's because the mess, I think, because the message is consistent. It's not that you know, um, they're, they know that what I hear at home is the same as what's being taught in school to my peers. So my peers don't think that I'm a, you know, um, whining around or being stuck in the past or something because they know sure. it's real. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine that. And I would think that, um, really, I mean, at least here in the, in the U S that the whole BIPOC community as a whole, 
right? Each, each of those subsets of the black indigenous people of color, et cetera. I mean, each group is going to be experiencing different kinds of intergenerational trauma and, you know, and passing that on more and more as a, I mean, I think, thank you for, you know, for bringing this up because we're, we need more awareness that this is going on constantly. So, I mean, it's, it's very apparent that, you know, that this is a a challenge, but are there, are there things that continue to perpetuate it? I mean, as a country, we, we should be more aware and more responsive to this, but what are some of the things that are happening to continue to perpetuate this challenge? So for sure, the, the, inaccurate and incomplete history telling the Mm. you know the you know i I think that we really want to shelter kids but they don't what we know psychologically is kids don't really need that they the truth is better for them to hear and i think you can i guess let that truth come to them slowly i don't think in kindergarten we need to teach kids you know (laughs) <laughs> some of the extent of the really awful stuff that's ever happened but right right if, if, a, if Make a kid, age appropriate information yeah, yeah 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 but you know at the same time it's it's so damaging for kids to learn that you know things like manifest destiny were these fantastic great things for everyone and and even some of the stuff that's in history textbooks like that indian people voluntarily left they just said, okay, you want to come here? That sounds yeah, here, here, <laughs> that's, here, a, that's absolutely sure, not what happened. Yeah, yeah, that's, right, that's right, not yeah. what happened. But I, I've literally, I have seen history textbooks that do teach it to kids that way, that it's put some way like American Indian people were happy to help share their land with, <laughs> with yeah. settlers. And um, <clears throat> that's yeah, just not. Fiction. No, of course not. Yeah, that's just not how it, how it happened. And, right. you know, the, there's a, huge you know it, it it's just kind of stops at a point right where there's just no more really talking about it there's so many things that happened after that like i i do think that it would be helpful for for people to be aware that you know it, it was against the law to leave the reservation you could not you you literally it was mm. we we before we called them the reservations we called them um domestic prisoner of war camps and my my home was a domestic prisoner of war camp. Uh, <clears throat> they were given numbers at first, and then they were, you know, given a more, I guess, uh, eloquent name <laughs> than than a yeah. number. And uh, but, and you know, the boarding school too. I think that that is important mm-hmm. for people to know about. You know, that that was something that was routine. I don't know if a lot of people know about that when i do have ever done trainings and i've asked people to raise their hand if they know what that is i don't usually get more than one or two hands. yeah <laughs> um, well, I, I mean even in a more aware country that we are now with all of the things that have happened over the past few years you know we we become more aware of i think more of society is aware of you know certainly what's happened to you know to blacks in our history Asians in our history, but, um, we do tend to forget about the native American and, and, you know, the challenges, uh, that continue today in, in a lot of ways and, you know, in the impact that that's had. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, um, 
another, I guess, clinically something that I see a lot is, you know, we don't, we don't always look like people would assume we look like <laughs> it, which is, you know, I, I will say I blame that on the John Wayne Westerns, which was, <laughs> you know, those were usually yeah, a, yeah. Italian or Spanish actors that were <laughs> wearing True. like brown paint <laughs> on right. their skin. Yeah. Um, you know, um, a lot of native people are, you know, we joke around that we have like two color seasons and that's like dark in the summer and then super pale in the winter time. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, for those of us who come from, from lineage in Canada or the Northern United States, like physiologically, it doesn't make sense that we would be super dark, right? Because right. we needed to get the, we needed to get that sunlight through our skin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so then I don't think clinicians ask, you know, um, yeah, what's your ethnic background? They just think they just automatically, well, assume I see a white person. Yep. Mm. Yeah, I see a white person here. I'm not sure. So I'm uncomfortable and I'm not going to ask. <laughs> Well, that's, yeah, that, that's all, all, all too often true, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so then, you know, there's, there's other stuff too, you know, I think I see a lot. Um, and, uh, one of my, one of my preceptors in school is Hispanic and he and I were talking about how fine of a line it would be with between magical thinking and acceptable, like spiritual beliefs (laughs) for Hispanic Mm -hmm. people and Native American people. Uh, I had a patient once who was telling me, this is when I was a nurse, that he, his psychiatrist wanted to hear something, um, just wanted to know how things were going or what he was up to. And he was saying, well, he had something really special happen in the last month. He was walking um, to a nearby village to be able to go to work, which a lot of people on the reservation walk like 20, 30 miles Mm. a day to do things like that. They don't have a lot of cars. And he was walking super early in the morning and he saw what I guess mainstream culture would call Bigfoot. And that's what he, that's the terminology used because he said, I didn't think this guy would know our word for that. Mm. So he, he said, and um, on the way back, I, I made, I made sure I bought an apple and some oranges in town. And I left them for him whenever I was walking home. And I said, what did he say about that? He said, he, he increased my medicine. I was called Risperidone, I think. He increased that to three milligrams. And he I just said, automatically assumed that there was a hallucination. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know, for, and he, I said, did you explain to him that, I mean, for us, for Lakota people, seeing what people call Bigfoot is a big deal. So we think they're ancestral uh-huh. spirits, very old ancestral spirits who keep the balance in nature. And for them to reveal themselves to you, to show themselves to you is a huge blessing. It means that they trust you. They feel that you're a gentle person, that you can be trusted with seeing their presence so you're not going to hurt them. And it is it is very much a thing like if you think that that has happened, you leave an offering for them saying thanks to them for, for doing that. And I thought to myself, uh, how is that any different than if somebody said, you know, my weekend was great. I went and ate the body of Christ and drank his blood. On Sunday morning, <laughs> you know that, and I mean no. that's not psychosis; yes. that's oh, a spiritual belief. Right. That's yeah. that's not 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 any different. So, my God, yeah, no, that's I mean, what a powerful analogy too, because it just it slaps the you know what would be considered maybe the unfortunately the default culture in this country right in the face. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. 
So I, I think what I hear you saying is, is that, you know, a big takeaway for all of us as, as psych nurse practitioners, if we're encountering people who are saying these kinds of things that it's essential for us to provide appropriate care to either learn um, about the culture that we're, we're practicing in, or if we have the occasional patient, not, you know, that that's expressing something to, to ask, ask questions, right. And, and, and figure out what is appropriate. Um, right? how would, how would you suggest in that, in that remarkable example, how would you have suggested that practitioner follow up with that, you know, with that statement? And to, to determine whether or not there was a, you know, whether it was actionable or, or not. I mean, very clearly this, hopefully this practitioner just didn't even think that it was, you know, something other than, you know, an ideology, but, but let's just assume that before you jump to that conclusion, that this is something that requires treatment, what should we be thinking? You know, I, I think that, you know, looking at, you know, is, is it something that, is like distressing it was not to him he had thought mm-hmm. as a, a blessing that he was um kind of on the right path in life because he had in looking at context he had quit drinking and was sober for a few months so he was feeling like i'm i'm healthy i'm working you know like things are going pretty it's good forward he, progress yeah yeah he had just gotten a gotten a uh what we call them governor's house as a their like modular homes that they build on the reservation. So he was really proud to be living in his own home. And so those are all things that were good that were happening. And, you know, that seeing that um, spirit was, you know, reinforcing of that. And he it was a positive experience. It was not a a negative or fearful one. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, Yep. (laughs) And, uh, he, yeah, like I said, was not distressing at all to him. And, you know, I think that it is important to, especially for psych NPs, that if spiritual is part of holism, then mm-hmm. is this a person's, is it part of their spiritual beliefs? And, you know, when you look at a true, like, hallucination or delusion, they're usually, like, very distressing and really interfering with people's lives. And I think that's right. Isn't that really the key, right? Mm-hmm. Because there are people out there of every walk of life who, you know, who, who potentially believe they see something, right? I mean, even the schizophrenic patients will tell you, I'm okay with that vision. I'm okay with, you know, pretending I see or, or believing that I see whatever it is that the phraseology that they use X. And so isn't it, doesn't it behoove us all the time to make a determination as to what's right for the patient based on their, right. Is this a stressor that needs to be worked on or is this just something that, you know, they're either willing to live with, or in the case of this example that you're, you've given they're, you know, this actually is probably bringing them joy and happiness. Right. And so, so why medicate that away? <laughs> yeah. 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 Exa- yeah. I think that's a great way to put it. Why medicate it away? You know, um, 
Because I think that, you know, because um, we can't, we can't, right. Should, could, should we give risperidone to everybody who wants to medicate Christ away? I can think of a line <laughs> of people, an absolute yeah. huge line of people, especially over the past couple of years. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it, and, and what good would that do if somebody is doing well and they've re, kind of made this reconnection to spirituality, which we know is a, it, in, it doesn't matter what spiritual belief you have, if you have one, you're healthier usually. Right, right. If, if you have one, you have some belief system that you connect to and that you feel strongly about, yeah. then you Is do it, better. Absolutely. Isn't the core of who, who we are as, as practitioners, right? We want to give them normalcy, but it should never be our normalcy. Right. It should always be what is normal and what the patient's expectations of normal are. We wouldn't expect that of any other culture. Why should we expect that of, you know, cultures of our indigenous people in, in this country? Uh, that's a very powerful way to look at it. Um, I can assume as well with the intergenerational trauma that part of the challenge too, um, especially in the native uh, people of, of our country it's got a, I mean, you sound like you provide a, you know, a phenomenal service there in North Dakota, but access to care can't be that, that easy. So does that not continue, right? If, if the grandma and the son and the, you know, and the children are all experiencing these traumas and, and nobody can get it medicated, nobody can get it managed, that, that has to continue to perpetuate it, I would think. Definitely, you know, um, <clears throat> a big challenge. Even, you know, I, I guess I'd say that there's pockets of of indigenous population, you know, larger indigenous populations in the U.S. and and actually the majority of us do live in urban areas mm-hmm. versus the reservation. But the, you know, like the the nursing population, for example, I think with we're like zero point four percent of of nurse practitioners mm-hmm. in the United mm-hmm. States. And that's all specialties across all specialties. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> you know, so the, you know, the percentage of therapists and addiction counselors that are, are indigenous is really low. And then also, you know, the education for providers isn't always there. I would say that I think there's a lot of providers that would like to learn, but if you don't have a lot of professionals doing that job in the first place, you know, then it's hard to find who who does these trainings or who holds these, and does the profession find them to be important, valuable, and mm-hmm. and want people to attend them? Uh, but yeah, the you know Indian Health Services is something that you can't access well unless you live on the reservation, mm-hmm. and you you know even if you can access that Indian Health Services is horrifically underfunded and always has been. Congress has admitted every time that they've met about to kind of re-up Indian Health Services has always said that Indian Health Services has never made a profound contribution to the health of Native people ever in its history, besides reducing tuberculosis rates, which they admit was also a problem caused by a settlement of the United States. So it's <laughs> right. kind of like, yeah. I mean, did we really help it because <laughs> the rates were like really low before we came here? So did we, <laughs> I mean, we kind of fixed the problem nice we created. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> admittedly. Uh, but yeah. no, you know, and I, I think something that, uh, you know, the, the 
group that you and I are part of there, you know, there was one time I was just horrified by some remarks from colleagues of like, well, you know, I worked at any health services, all those people are mad and they're rude and they're entitled. And it's like, yes, we're entitled. Indian health services is an entitlement. It was something that is paid for by the United States government that would came about because of treaty obligations that they, the United States government gave themselves in a contract. They said, we will provide health care for Native American people until as long as the grass grows and the, and the rivers run. Hmm. So it's a, it is an entitlement. It is something that we, it is a, it's a payment for land and for other exchanges. But I guess... Maybe it's overly philosophical for the podcast, but I'm going to ask it anyway. But but should it matter, right? I mean, I think I I do remember that uh, that message string, and it and it enraged me as well because I think to myself that's that's not it's not part of the conversation that we as psychiatric nurse practitioners should be having, right? What what should be the conversation we should be having is is what are the services that our patient in front of us need. And what are the services that the community around them need? And if we're not willing to provide them, then we need to find somewhere else to be. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like that. Yes, I, I agree. I mean, what I, thinking back to that, I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, I hope that none of these people ever work at the VA because if they're treating veterans, which is essentially. Oh, my the, God, it's was, an entitlement. That was the same. Yeah, it, it was. Social is Security the, is an entitlement. I mean, you know, where where do you draw the line? Yeah. You know, um, yeah. WIC is an entitlement. You know, the three-year-old should be going to school and and working after school in order to pay their medical bills. Yeah. I, you know, where, where do you draw the line? It's just. And, you know, yeah. truly, I, I think that uh, if, you know, if a provider feels like they've had a bad experience like that with Indigenous people or, or any population for that matter that might be having intergenerational trauma effects, it, it's probably because, you know, I, I do think there's some big strengths with that come with intergenerational trauma. One, you know, the <clears throat> the emphasis on extended family. You know, you see mm-hmm. Hispanic people very much care for their elders their their parents or grandparents or great-grandparents they make sure that they are taken care of they respect them so much um you know african-american families too big emphasis on extended family um and traditions in indigenous people and in a lot of intuitiveness too i think you know when growing up you know and going to indian health services being a patient indian health services you can definitely tell what providers are there to pay off their student loans and which ones care. And yeah. I, I remember one of the one of the best providers I've ever seen ever in my life in IHS or not was a uh, she is she was actually just recognized by Indian Health Services a few years ago. Her name is Suzanne England, and she's a nurse practitioner. She was stationed on my reservation, the Air Force, and so she had to be there, but she didn't act like she had to be there. Mm-hmm. You know, people did give her flack with like, why did you tell my daughter she should be on birth control? Because she's having sex and you're, she's going to have a baby. <laughs> she's right, going to have right. birth control. And she would joke with people, you can you can try to run me off, but the government says that I have to be here. 
And if I and if I don't stay here, they'll put me in prison. <laughs> so, um, you can chase me off, but they'll chase me back. Chase you back. <laughs> she said so. Nobody is getting rid of me. You know, she would have a she would kind of joke back with people like, "Well, it's not going to be that easy to ditch me." You know, and she really did build a good relationship with a lot of people on reservation. People started inviting her to their homes, inviting her mm-hmm. to gatherings and things, mm-hmm. and and honorings her for her for her service to people and so I mean it it took you know she I guess acknowledged why people like I she told me one time she said I know people here don't have to trust me and they have no reason to Mm. and I I know that that's nothing that is is uh anything that I wouldn't agree with if I was on the other side of things so Sure. And again, right. It's, you know, it's about, right. We shouldn't as care providers, we shouldn't be re-traumatizing. You know, and I think that's, uh, that's a piece of the puzzle for every patient that we see, right. We should be doing what we can not to re not to re-traumatize. And, you know, if, uh, um, I had, some opportunity, not nearly as much as I wanted, but I had some opportunity to work with folks on, um, down when I was living in, in the Phoenix area and working in a couple of the hospitals, we had a fairly large population of, um, and, and I think what I found was, is that the key was mutual respect. I mean, I worked in an ER, people come into the emergency room when there's an emergency, you know, treat them, treat them like humans, treat them appropriately, whether they came in off the reservation or whether they came in off the street or, you know, in, in my case where I was, whether they came over the border and were undocumented, whatever it was, is just, right. Treat them as humans, treat their needs and, you know, and, and, don't be part of that re-traumatization of, you know, the respect. Don't, don't affirm perhaps what grandma told them, uh, you know, to, to expect. And I think that, you know, that goes a long way. Uh, we ask so many patients, what is it I can do for you? So, uh, you know, if we, right, that, that should be where we start with everybody. Whitney, what's your advice for, for those of us, um, as psychiatric nurse practitioners who might be, you know, dealing with patients who, you know, are part of this intergenerational trauma cycle, what are some of the things that you would recommend that all of us, whether we're, you know, close to an Indian res or not, what are the things that you think we should, uh, be conscious of and maybe teach ourselves? You know, just um, being conscious of those messages that people are getting whenever they're part of those communities that, Mm -hmm. that, like you were saying, not being reinforcing of what has been taught, you know, as a mechanism to stay safe, basically, uh, being, being sure that the safest space is safe for everyone, um, Mm -hmm. you're a safe person, and that, uh, you know, if, if people have things to say that, you know, might be new news to you, because like I said, there's, you know, there's a lot of people out there that, that don't even, have never even heard of, of boarding schools. 
But, you know, if you're, I mean, those went on until 1978 in this country, until the 1990s in Canada. So if you have a patient from, from Canada, say, that is you know, 40 years old, and they're telling you they got took out of their parents' home and parted off to boarding school, and that's where they spent their lives until they were adults um, being indoctrinated with anti, you know, basically anti-Indigenous everything. <laughs> so then... Yeah. You know, they, they're really struggling with hating themselves, you know, to not think, well, that sounds unbelievable, you know, like, I mean, look, look it up. I mean, because there, there's things that I've heard about, you know, stuff that's happened overseas in other countries. And I, I guess I just believe people. I don't know. I had a priest that told yeah. me, she said, we were never intended to be human lie detectors. So trying to spend a whole bunch of time and energy deciding if somebody's lying to you, <laughs> it's just not a good use of your time. And mm-hmm. she, she said, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that happens to people. It does sound unbelievable, but we have a, we just as much as we have a capacity to be great to each other, we have a capacity to be cruel to each other too. So, mm. um, you know, looking into those things and um, affirming that people's experiences rather than denying them or, or whatever. I think that that's good. And then just being kind of, I guess, aware of issues that might affect your patient populations. That. Yeah, I mean, you say two things that I think are, are key, right? Be aware and be affirming, right? You know, so you're going to be hit with things in, in your career that <clears throat> maybe you'd never heard of. I mean, and the, you know, the same applies to anybody of any culture, right? And and to affirm it and to support it, and I mean, I think those are those are very powerful uh, concepts. Um, don't deny. Don't don't assume. We all know what happens when we assume. Um, apparently, in that story you told, we, when we assume, the patient gets resparadon. Um, yeah, you know. So uh, be aware. Uh, affirm, um, support. And I think also, right, you know, and this should be standard practice for all of us, uh, but it bears repeating here is, you know, determine what the patient needs, right. And, and involve them in that process. Yeah. Um, And I think that that can be extremely powerful. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to share? No, I don't, I don't think so. Okay. Well, this has been enlightening. I think, you know, hopefully our, our, our audience hears this and, you know, acknowledges that what we're talking about here is, is, um, you know, the impact that the native American population has, uh, has experienced in our country, um, but also can apply it to so many other, um, you know, social groups. I, I think, you know, the wisdom you've given applies to everybody. You know, if you're, not used to working with people of, you know, from the native American community, from the Latino community, the black community, the LGBTQ community, right. I mean, all of this applies in, you know, in different ways, uh, but it's extremely powerful and very important for us to understand how it impacts, uh, those, uh, those patients of ours that have come from, you know, any underserved population, especially the native American population here in the U S thanks very much for uh, being on the show today. 
Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks, Ed. Well, that's it for this episode of Psych and PCAST. We'll see you in our next episode. Don't forget to tell your friends and in whatever podcast system you're in, don't forget to rate us. That helps us get found by other Psych NPs. We'll see you next time.